Hello, everyone. Um, so where do I start? My next guest is an expert in trauma and substance abuse. Her trauma-based research has been massively influential, causing organizations such as Cork Simon Community to change to a model based on trauma. She has acted as a special advisor to the Gardaí and the EU, and her expertise has resulted in her giving talks to the Metropolitan Police in the UK and the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation in Ireland. She continues to positively impact society by focusing on helping the individual rather than the addict or the homeless. You're very welcome, Dr. Sharon Lambert. Thank you for offering your time. How are you? Thank you very much for having me. I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Good dear. Um, so I'm going to jump straight into it. Um, with the introduction of COVID, Sharon, a big argument for schools needing to reopen is that some children aren't safe at home. Um, with the likelihood that COVID will bring along adverse childhood experiences, can you firstly explain what is an adverse childhood experience? And secondly, what impact does it have on child development? Okay, so um, ACEs or adverse childhood experiences are exactly what they say on the tin. So it's adversity that happens um, during childhood. Um, I suppose what's more needed in terms of discussions is what do we consider to be adverse childhood experiences? So when many people talk about ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, they think about the seminal study that was done in the Centre for Disease Control by Feliti et al. So they looked at um, a large population of people and they looked at 10 particular adverse experiences that happened during childhood. And they were abuse, neglect and, and other dysfunctions within the house. And what they found was people who had scored four or more of those were um, at more risk for poor mental health issues or physical health issues. Now, in terms of that study, and it was very important um, from an epidemiological perspective because it showed that, you know, experiencing uh, trauma and exposure to toxic stress during development uh, while a child is developing ha has an impact on later life outcomes. I think we've always known that, but, you know, this was real um, tangible support. For me, when I'm thinking about adverse childhood experiences, I think about it as any adversity that happens to children when they're still developing. So the original study, as I said, had those 10 items, but all of those adversities happened within the home. There are other adversities that children experience that can have a long term impact on their development, too. So poverty is a massive one. And poverty is not always a choice. In fact, it's rarely a choice. Poverty is something happens as a result of um, poor government policies. Other adverse childhood experiences are witnessing community violence. So living in an area perhaps where there might be some gangland activity and you're exposed to that violence. Uh, racism and discrimination is also an adverse childhood experience. And that's a massive one for black and other ethnic minorities. Um, in particular in Ireland, children of the traveling community experience a lot of exclusion and discrimination. Other ones that people mightn't have thought about are things like a one-off traumatic event for a child, such as um, a medical illness or a medical injury that has meant that they've had a period of hospitalization and they might okay. have suffered some type of, of trauma as a result of that. So um, I suppose basically that's adverse childhood experiences. For me, it's very broad. It's adversity during childhood and it impacts on emotional, social and cognitive development. So do you feel, Sharon, is there a possibility, could COVID go down as an adverse childhood experience or would there be more circumstances needed? 
It depends. Uh, I actually, I had a quick look at uh, what's been said in the literature, and it's, it's kind of 50-50. People are saying that um, COVID could be perceived as um, an adversity for children, but actually the way in which the adults respond to COVID is actually mm. what causes the adversity. So yeah. for children, children are pretty resilient and they're pretty adaptable. Most children that I know are absolutely delighted not to be in school. <laughs> they are, you know, they're busy during the day. They have things to entertain themselves. Um, so a lot of the, the, the current literature that's there and certainly when looking at, at past epidemics like SARS and Ebola, that it's the responses of the adults, how adults around you respond uh, to the pandemic is, is actually a bigger predictor of how children will experience it. There are children who will be more impacted by COVID than other children. Um, in it's children not in equal. poverty. Would, would children you? in poverty and not just children in poverty children living in, in unsafe homes so domestic violence has increased dramatically during lockdown domestic violence does not discriminate based on socioeconomic status one of the other things that we know has increased during lockdown as well is the amount of alcohol that people are consuming at home so okay. parental alcohol use that might be at a problematic level is an adverse childhood experience. There is lots and lots and lots of literature on the impact on children of, of adults or children who are um, children of alcoholics that affects um, mental health as well. And that can be traumatic. And are there individual differences, Sarah, between, um, let's say, like, are there personality factors that can make children more resilient against adverse childhood experiences or is it quite universal? You know, there's, there's different internal and external protective factors. Um, is there any one thing that you could identify as, you know, if a child has X within themselves that would make them more resilient? There isn't really. Actually, a lot of what matters in terms of adversity is the amount of it that you've received. So to be honest, adversity and experience and, you know, ruptures and stressors in life is normal. Um, life is not always rosy all of the time and um, bad things happen. Um, it's when there's too many bad things in a very short space of time. So there's no opportunity to repair. So if you think about the impact of stress on the body, you know, it increases, you know, your heart rate and increases your blood pressure and it triggers off this physiological response. It's, you know, sending lots of chemicals around through your body. That's okay. That happens to all of us. All of us get stressed. But what, what matters is having a period of time to repair. Mm -hmm. And if you're living in a situation where it's constant stress, 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 with no opportunity to repair, that's where the most damage gets done. And we know actually for children, one of the biggest single protective factors is one good adult. Mm -hmm. Okay. which of course it, a lot of children might be missing now if yeah. if if there are children who are living in homes that are unsafe they may be missing that one good adult because that one good adult may have been a teacher or it may have been the person who drives the bus yeah or or possibly a grandparent even now that they probably yeah, can't see absolutely yeah yeah um so i don't want to make this only covid related so um you have particular expertise in addiction um, in 2015, I read that the Health Research Board reported that there were two drug-related deaths a day in, the con in this country, which was the fourth highest in Europe. Um, why do you think Ireland has such high statistics with addiction? I suppose uh, 
there's a couple of policies that we just need to start moving a little bit quicker on. So the first one, I think, is dual diagnosis services. So a dual diagnosis service is a service that works with somebody who has both a substance dependence issue and a mental health issue. And it's very, very common for people in addiction to have both. Um, and sometimes if their mental health is chronic, addiction services won't work with them. But then if their addiction is chronic, mental health services won't work with them. Mm -hmm. So we've done research where we've interviewed the families of the bereaved. Um, so our bereaved families. Um, so we interviewed families where they had lost a loved one to um, a drug or alcohol related death. And they all said that it was extremely difficult when their loved one was alive to navigate the services. And they often found that when they went looking for help, there was always some reason why they couldn't get it at that particular service. So people ended up going around and around in circles. And when you have people who are going around and around and around about um, with no end in sight, um, it's very overwhelming and they get tired and, and people die. Um, our other thing is we don't have safe injecting. Uh, facilities yeah. so Port Portugal obviously introduced that and they had um, um, a massive decrease in tandem with decriminalization policies as well so our national drug strategy for the country says that um, addiction is viewed as a health issue and not as a criminal justice issue um, but we have a lot more to do to move from a criminal justice response to a health related response people in addiction are still being treated as criminals um, and, you know, they still don't have access to safe injection um, where people normally might source their drugs. Um, those, it's getting more difficult because of lockdown restrictions, et cetera, et cetera. So people are buying more stuff off the internet that they don't know what's in it. So it'll be interesting to see if COVID has had an impact on, well, actually what was very interesting was drug related deaths. Um, uh, dropped slightly. Now, the, obviously, the official statistics in doubt yet, but this is just anecdotally from talking to people who run addiction services. They would have reported that in the height of lockdown, that drug-related deaths had dropped. And the reason why it had happened was because services became more flexible. So, for example, if I had an appointment at 10 o'clock in the morning in the past, and I didn't turn up, then that was it, tough luck, you know, back to the back, back of the list. But what was, what was happening because of all of the new social distancing measures and lockdown is that services were being more flexible and they were ringing to people doing telephone consultations, yep. doing online consultations, and also doing house calls. So um, once the um, lockdown lifted, uh, it appears that the drug-related debt started to increase again. So right. while that's just, you know, anecdotal from talking to people working in services, it would be interesting to see if that's what plays out in the official statistics, obviously we won't have official statistics for at least 18 months because those deaths have to go through the coroner's court before they're officially registered. Is that the responsibility of choosing that flexibility? Is that on the government or is it on independent services? Could they choose to do that if they wanted to? I think they could. Okay. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to get you are. in trouble now. <laughs> no, you won't. I, I'm smiling because um, I, just, um, I just think that a lot of, there, there is no national policy that I know of that dictates how you do your job. Yeah. It might say it's best practice to use X or Y model, but nobody tells you whether that should be done 
you know, mm-hmm. in a cl- large clinical building in a city centre, or yeah. whether you should get up off your ass and go out to somebody's house if they're struggling to engage with you. And um, so you mentioned Portugal have been quite successful by changing it to a more health-based model. Um, is Ireland behind the general normal compared to other countries, or is it kind of this is a global issue? Oh, it's a global issue. Scotland is 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 uh, has pretty high levels of drug-related deaths as well. America is just skyrocketing in terms of its um, its opiate epidemic and, and overdose deaths there. Um, countries that are, are are good at it are countries that tend to be slightly more left-leaning, I guess. So mm. um, Finland has quite a low level of homelessness now than it did uh, a decade ago because they introduced housing first. So that's another thing in relation to drugs is that people sometimes say, oh, in order for you to get this apartment and into the training course and to get an appointment with a mental health professional, we want you to be totally abstinent. Um, so what they're doing is they're asking, sometimes they're asking very vulnerable people to j- jump through hoops that they'll never be able to jump through. Mm. So the housing first model says, actually, let's go back, let's strip it all back and look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the very first thing that we need to do is to meet people's basic needs. So they need to have somewhere with a roof over their head and they need to have that kind of security. And once you provide that, then you can start to tackle the other issues. So there will be other issues. There will be justice issues. There will be financial issues. There will be mental health issues, physical health issues, training and educational needs. But that's so much easier to do with somebody once they feel physically and emotionally safe by having their own building. So Finland has housing first, and that has had a dramatic impact on the levels of homelessness there and people's capacity to to stay out of homelessness. Yeah, so um, there's a few angles I can go here now. Um, I'm going to go because you brought up, I want to tie in just for, pe- just for listeners to understand the relationship between addiction and trauma. So there was a blog where you wrote, um, if we want to do something about the cycle of addiction, then we need to address the cycle of trauma. So can you explain exactly how trauma and addiction are linked just for listeners who um, aren't clear on it? Yeah, so I guess... There are lots of different people who are uh, dependent on substances. I suppose my research really focuses on chronic long-term users and chronic long-term homelessness. So the research that we've done, we have collected trauma histories from people in addiction services and people in homelessness services and women in um, the probation services as well who had a history of addiction. And what we found was that um, across the board, and they had statistically significantly more histories of trauma in their childhoods than the general population as well when you were involved in chronic addiction or chronic homelessness you're also at risk for more traumatic experiences so your risk of being physically assaulted or sexually assaulted is higher um, when you're in chronic addiction or chronic homelessness so in terms of trauma and addiction uh, i would argue that addiction is a response to trauma and that people who've experienced a lot of trauma during childhood have um, struggled in the past with being able to you know respond to their emotional distress um, you'll often find people in addiction services have been excluded from education at quite a young age so they've, they've been on the margins for a while um, so they're not plugged into services that might be able to support their emotional development so in the absence of that 
support you experience emotional distress. And a great way to relieve emotional distress is the use of drugs and alcohol. Anybody who's really stressed after a hard day's work will know that when they go home and they say, oh, I'm gonna have a glass of wine with my dinner and it'll make me feel better. Um, it's like that multiplied by a hundred. So I see people who use substances to, to, to alleviate their emotional distress as, as absolutely fantastic human beings who have found a way of coping with their distress that has allowed them to be able to, to, to continue living. Unfortunately, when you're in addiction and you're using substances at a level that's creating a dependency, it no longer works in the way that it used to in the start. So it becomes quite problematic and you get lots of other social problems and personal problems. Yeah. So for me, I know years ago, there was a big um, debate of, you know, the chicken and egg debate about, you know, does mental health come first or is all, um, anyone who's been in addiction is their mental health as a result of their addiction. Um, but from the research that we've done and from my experience of working in, in addiction services in the past, um, it was always that people had mental health first and that the addiction came second. So just to clarify, would you um, categorize addiction as a mental illness or absolutely. a mental health Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. No question about it. If you think about it, lots of people use drugs. Lots of people use drugs all over the world. There are people sitting at home listening to your podcast, smoking a doobie, um, you know, and there are people sitting at home having a drink. So lots of people use drugs, but lots of people can pick up drugs and put them back down again, and they just use them recreationally. And the people who can't just use them recreationally are, are, are taking drugs, and it's not about the substance that they use. Yeah. It's about what it gives them um, if I told you that I was addicted to exercise I'm not I wish that was my thing but I'm not um, you know so like there are people in in my life who exercise too much there are people in my life who eat too much there are people in my life who shop too much you know we all know people who get involved in in behaviors that are doing something other than the end product um, the only reason why we treat addiction differently, of course, is because many of the substances that people are using are illegal. Um, if you look at the differences in the way an alcoholic is treated in comparison to the way a heroin user is treated, they're very different. Mm. Same thing, they've both got a substance dependence, only one of them. Somebody somewhere has decided at one point that one of these substances could be legal and one of them couldn't be. Yeah. Um... And but you see Ireland as well, like our society in general, like we're stereotyped as being big, big drinkers as well. So do you think that has an effect on it? Like, do you think that has a negative impact on how Ireland sees alcoholics, for example, compared to drug users? Um, I think we're much more tolerant of alcoholism because, you know, if you people who know alcoholics would say, oh, he's a great man, he can hold about 10 pints. Mm. So it's almost seen sometimes it's only when they get messy you know, and they've been arrested for drink driving or they've lost their job. So it's only when things get messy like that, that, you know, people start to see it as a problem. But actually, you know, we we consume a lot of alcohol and it's very bad for us. It's very bad for our physical health and our mental health. And if you're a parent who's consuming alcohol on a regular basis to a point where you're drunk on a regular basis, you might not be able to meet your children's needs. And that has an impact. So I think your question was about, you know, there was this thing in the past, you know, that addiction was this thing that was a gene, this magic gene 
that nobody has ever found that was passed from one generation to another. And actually, we haven't found that. But what we have found is we have an intergenerational transmission of trauma. And if you want to break the cycle of addiction and poor mental health, and you want to improve people's access to education and employment and, and good physical health and good mental health, you have to break the cycle of trauma. Um, I have a probably a difficult question for you now, Sharon. Um, I would have worked for a while in a, an addiction, an adolescent addiction center. And the people I worked with, they made the point to me, I remember when I first started, that they know within a few days if the person is going to recover or not because of their level of motivation. Um, do, <laughs> you're already grimacing at that. Um, do, do you think... Um, like if somebody, even through this trauma-based model, if somebody doesn't want to be helped, is there much that um, us as a society can provide for them? I think that when people say things like they're lacking motivation, that's um, unfortunate that they have such a lack of understanding about the impact of trauma on the brain and on the, on, on the body. So one of the things that we know is if you're exposed to a lot of toxic stress that it impacts on um, your motivation hormone, um, so while somebody might look at somebody and perceive them as being unmotivated, in fact, they're just totally traumatized. And what you're seeing is somebody who's flat um, and they're right in saying that they're not motivated, but it's absolutely a natural response for that individual. So our jobs as professional, by saying that they're not motivated, particularly in relation to children, the reason I grimaced is I just cannot stand it when people say that in relation to children, because their brain isn't even fully formed. They have no clue what they want, um, when they want it or how they're going to get there. So our job is to meet somebody where they're at recognize that they're even changing the language around it so i wouldn't say that somebody's not motivated i'd say somebody is struggling to be more somebody is struggling to find their motivation and our okay. job then is to help them to find that so we need to find what it is that we can hook them into something that can help to work on their motivation levels but we have to acknowledge that when trauma presents it presents very differently for different individuals some people can appear very withdrawn which can appear as unmotivated and other people can present as being very aggressive um so um the motivation one absolutely drives me insane because uh, you don't understand people services who say that that somebody's not motivated to change um it's it's a really old thing that was said in addiction it's a really old model it's coming from a particular model that was designed for adults and should never be used with adolescents in the first yeah. place anyway. Um, so do you think then that, I know this is a, a big jump, but do you think there's a possibility that we could start integrating some of this language you were referring to or the terminology into the regular typical uh, education system? Do you think that's possible? Yeah, I think... I actually think that the place if we wanted to start with breaking a cycle of trauma is to start in primary schools because um, teachers have, and I know teachers will hate me saying this because they, they feel so overworked already, but they, they spend a huge amount of time with little people. Um, you know, so, I mean, I have two children myself, you know, when, when the schools are open and the kids are going, teachers probably spend more time in the week with my kids than I do myself. 
So if it, they're in a really unique position to know a child and children who are really struggling present uh, sometimes as really challenging or sometimes as unmotivated. Um, so it's about recognizing those children and tapping into that and catching them much earlier up the stream. And then about adopting a no blame perspective. So when parents are struggling, so if there's domestic violence in the home or there's parents drinking in the home or whatever it is, it's about recognizing that those parents are doing the best that they can. It's not good enough, um, but it's the best that they can do at the moment and about supporting the whole family so yeah. that everybody can be safe and well. Um, and then it's very easy to kind of think about the language that we use and about challenging it. Um, so when somebody says to me that um, somebody's not willing to participate, I say, I wonder why they're struggling to participate. So it's just about... Um, every time, and I do it myself, you know, when somebody says something, sometimes my automatic response is they're not trying hard enough or they didn't do good enough. And then I have to take a deep breath and step back. And, be, and I, what I say to people is be curious. When you make that initial judgment, catch yourself making the judgment and then be curious and say, I wonder, I wonder why, I wonder why it's difficult for them to do this at the moment. And I wonder what am I doing wrong or what am I not doing that's not working for this person how could I change my service so that it works better for this person and actually a lot of the times particularly in relation to young people we don't ever ask them we don't ever say why did you not turn up for those three appointments and yeah. it might be something as simple as I, I have such bad I remember working in, with young people in an addiction service and and sometimes you know people wouldn't turn up for appointments and it was because they didn't have the money for the bus or because they had really bad social anxiety and they actually had gone down to the bus and they couldn't get on it. Um, but then when you say things like, you know, you're not motivated to change, immediately they get their back up um, because you have not tried to understand what is the barriers here for them coming along with you. Yeah, um, so that's a great explanation on an individual level. On a group level, though, what are the types of discussions that teachers could possibly have with students surrounding addiction? Because I know there's obviously a stigma there, so they'd be worried about maybe going too far, about talking about too sensitive topics. But what do you think would be good conversations to have in the classroom? Actually, there's research that shows that um, in, in relation to secondary school, um, there's research that shows that you shouldn't go in and, you know, they go in and they talk about how drugs are bad. Yeah. Don't do drugs. Drugs are bad. Um, there's research that shows that that does not work. And in fact, it has the opposite effect, particularly in relation to vulnerable children. So okay. what we should be doing is um, talking about coping and feelings and stress and in and say, you know, when you're stressed, this is and doing, I suppose, basically basic psychoeducation so when you're stressed what happens in your brain what happens in your body how are the ways in which some people respond to stress in a positive way and how are the ways that some some people respond to stress in a negative way and one of those of course is substances so i think by talking about it in that way you're not singling out addiction as being you know this this inappropriate stress response system that is so different than all of the other ones because it's not it's just mm -hmm. an it's it's an it's an unhelpful um stress response system just like all of the other unhelpful stress response systems except that if i'm going to have if mine is overeating if i'm sitting at home at night time and i'm on my fourth bag of chili doritos um 
people are, it's bad for my mental health and it's bad for my physical health, but people don't have a big issue with it. And they're not going to separate it out from, you know, this separating addiction out from all of those, those other unhelpful behaviors is saying that it's not a health behavior. It's a criminal behavior. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, what about talking about, um, I, by the way, I, I couldn't agree with you more, like giving alternative emotion regulation strategies other than alcohol and drugs is so important. Um, my question's after going now. Oh, sorry. Um, what about discussing in class, obviously not specific, but like trauma in general, actually teaching children about this is what trauma can do? Um, do yeah. you think that would be a good discussion to have or... I think I think it's it. I think actually that it you can you can. I don't tend to use the word trauma when I'm talking to to young people. I tend to use the word stress because I think trauma can be a very scary word. But absolutely, I agree with you. It's it's the same thing. Um, you can talk to children and young people about stress, and you explain to them. Actually, there was a a project in um, in Cork. It was called the Sorted Project. It was a pilot mm. project that was run with young, early school leavers where they looked at um, uh, teaching. That's what it was basically doing, was it, was it was teaching about the impact of stress on thinking and the impact of stress on the body. And I think it was the first time that every single young person who was registered for that module finished that module, you know, that they had a 100% completion rate for a module. And I know that they've, uh, they tried to run another larger um, research study of it this year but unfortunately it stopped because of COVID but certainly the feedback from the young people and the the tutors that facilitated that um, was was incredibly positive so they learned I suppose what they learned was sometimes they feel that some of the responses that they have are totally out of their control so when they get when they have a rush to anger or they have a rush to some kind of emotional distress often they felt that that was something that was totally their control summation about their own brains and their own bodies um so that they had power and and you know that that phrase about information is power knowledge is power it's totally true like as a psychologist when i'm at home and i'm stressed and i want to you know i'm hearing the kids driving around i'm like ah um i can check in with myself and i can say oh you're totally overreacted to that you're having some kind of a physiological stress response system. Your reaction is inappropriate to what has just happened. What's that about, Sharon? And then I can, you know, start thinking about it and I'll say, oh, it's because such and such happened an hour ago and you haven't left that yet. And now you're having this inappropriate meltdown about the kids putting yogurt on the dog or whatever has happened. Um, so, I mean, I'm really fortunate and really privileged that I got to spend seven years in college studying psychology. So it means I understand a lot about what happens with myself. So it's about taking that information and, and, and giving it to other people because we all are exactly the same, except some of us, unfortunately, have experienced more stress and trauma than others. Perfect answer. Okay, um, I have two questions left then. Um, my next one, um, we could have parents listening in at the moment and they have a fear that maybe one of their children has an addiction problem. I don't feel this is clarified enough, even in education in schools. What are the next steps when the parent is feeling that way? Um, is to get support for yourself. 
for working when, when you have young people who are um, using substances um, the most important thing that that will help change that situation is the ability of the parent to deal with it and you will not be able to deal with it on your own because it is very stressful and it is very scary um, so getting access to a really good family therapist or a really good a, a person who's qualified in addiction counseling um, who will support you in, as a family working with children on their own does not work um, if if the parents and the child are to come out of this okay then they have to all go through the processes together so being able to respond to your child for if if you're the parent your initial thing is just fear absolute fear and shame a lot of shame of course as well and um, so you might respond with it from a place of anger and fear and um, it won't work um so you have to get support so that you can deal with your own emotional response to the issue and that that is being dealt with in a way that uh, frees you up to be able to respond to your child's needs otherwise if you're just you know shouting to the child and giving out to them or screaming or crying or whatever it is that you're doing you're not responding to your child's needs you're not going to understand why they've ended up in the situation that they're in now all you're doing is dealing with your emotional response that has to be dealt with but it has to be dealt with separately so that yeah. you can actually support your child okay and um then moving on then so after um I'm, I'm really glad you made that point because most people would just go into services but in relation to seeking out services um would a parent go to a gp or how would that work and um, most so the hse fund nearly all of the drug and alcohol services in the country so um i would say so the hse and they have a website most counties have a directory of services gps um some gps will have trained in substance use issues but many will have not so it is best to go to the services that specialize in, in, with those um, and it's best to go to the services that are within your own community um, so and also to try to pick services where you've gotten recommendations or certainly some kind of feedback about that service um, some services are better than others um, some yeah. services take a very punitive approach towards drug and alcohol like the he's not motivated to change that just that's not okay with with kids so if you have a, a child who is really depressed really depressed um, they have no motivation and that is a symptom of depression it is not a symptom of them not wanting to get up their arse and, and make things better it's yeah. a symptom of depression. So uh, I would definitely say do your research, find a good service within your community. You go first, you get the support first, uh, and then bring your child along. If you try to force your child into a service, it won't work. They won't engage um, because they're not ready and it's not that they're not motivated to change, it's because they're in the middle of whatever chaos or crisis that they're dealing with somebody in the house needs to not be in crisis and that needs to be one of the adults and that's why the adult needs to go first to get the help that they need and then respond to the child's needs then okay 
that's an excellent answer. Um, now, this is a question I ask to all of my ge uh, guests and it might slightly put you on the spot. Um, if you could educate the next generation on one thing where every child or adolescent would get exposure to this education, what, what would it be? Mm. I've gotten that response. <laughs> if we don't. Yeah. It's, I, I know it's a big question. It it, yeah, because it changes, I suppose, because I have two small children, so I'm thinking about what are the things I talk to. You see, there's a few, there's three, I can't give you one, racism and discrimination. Um, okay. Talking to children about racism and discrimination. Um, climate change, I know which might be a weird answer for a psychologist, but um, it's really important. Mm. Um, can, can I just hold you to the first one, Sharon, if that's all right? Um, the racism. Um, just having the conversation with children is that what you're saying i think people adults need to acknowledge the fact that they're racist um mm. start from there we're all racist um it's it's part of human nature to be racist because uh, your body and your brain your brain is all scanning the environment for danger and one of the ways that your brain knows about danger is difference um so, you know, I've given this example about when I, I lived in the UK in the 90s and the IRA were bombing the place. Uh, when you got on a train and you had an Irish accent, she didn't speak because people were afraid of you because you might blow the place up. That was totally, well, while I found that very difficult to deal with, um, it was a totally normal response for people who lived there. Now, it's when you don't check yourself. When you find yourself saying, fuck off home, Paddy, <laughs> Now you've moved into um, behavior. So if you think about, you know, black and other ethnic minority groups, when 9-11 happened, I was frightened to fly on airplanes where somebody was standing beside me in the queue that was very obviously Muslim. And I would see them and I would think, oh, my God, what's the risk here? You know, and then I would remember that that's how I felt when I lived in the, in the 90s. So I would check myself and say, well, you weren't a terrorist in the 90s presumably this person isn't one either so it's about knowing that we're all capable of being racist but then checking yourself to make sure that it doesn't stem into behavior so even children children notice differences um you know they say oh look that person's skin is so shiny so you just say okay so what you know i would just remember one that's one time one of my children the first time that because we don't have much um diversity where i live the first time that one of my children ever saw a black person, I remember her saying that his skin was really shiny. She didn't actually comment on the color. And I said, oh, how, you know, how do you mean it's shiny? And she said, it's just so beautiful. And, you know, so I think it's about, and then having the conversations. So then she, she said, um, oh, yeah, she said to me, do you think he drinks dirty water? And I said, how do you mean? And it was because her only exposure to people of color was adverts on the television about clean drinking water in Africa. Yeah. So that was my opportunity then to have a conversation about yeah. what you can't generalize, not every single black person in the world lives in Africa and doesn't have access. Yeah. Here's an example of all of the other black people. As, as opposed to some, um, some caregivers that might just say, don't say that, or not actually explaining it, but just like repressing yeah. it essentially. Yeah, but you will also have caregivers who are racist. Yeah. So, you know, what do you do about that? I suppose hoping that the child picks up stuff in school, that they're exposed to diversity in school or in the workplace or wherever they travel um, so that they don't adopt those values. 
Um, and I think about saying to children as well about not being a bystander, you know, if you are in school and somebody's calling somebody a name because they're different, don't stand back, don't stand back and watch it happen. And if you feel like you can't deal with it in that moment, you have to go and you have to tell an adult. Um, yeah. You cannot participate or watch uh, children being cruel to other children um, and not, not intervene. Um, and final question, Sharon, thanks so much for giving your time. But uh, where can people find you if they're interested in your work? Um, just uh, my list of uh, research publications are on my uh, staff profile on UCC. So some of them have the full text links if anybody wants those. Uh, if they're not there, people can email my email address is up there. So if anybody wants to read any more of the research, they can email me and I can send them copies of it, no problem. Perfect. Uh, I'll include all that in the show notes anyway. I just want to say thank you so much again, Sharon, because I know you're busy. So I uh, really, really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed it. Okay, thanks. And thanks, thanks so much for having me. And if I want to finish it, like everybody's talking about be kind, actually do it. Like just do it. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Thanks.